0: If you have your Bible or your phone, you can flip to 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11. And while you're flipping there, let's tell just real quick story. Uh, Ever since I was a kid, I've kind of enjoyed riddles the great thing about riddles is, you know, no matter what the riddle is, it makes sure you have to really think about the riddle. Make sure you think outside of the box. Um, some riddles are funny. Some riddles, you know, you kind of want to kick yourself after you hear the answer. It's like, oh, you know, why didn't I think of that? And so just riddles, it is just really cool. It's really intriguing. Now, I'm going to tell you a riddle this morning here. It's a common riddle, all right? Do not yell out the answer, <laughs> although I know you guys know it. The riddle starts off this way. A man and his son are in a terrible accident. Both of them get rushed to the hospital. As the doctor comes out to meet them, the doctor looks at the kid and says, I can't operate on him. He's my boy. How can that be? All right, I'll say the riddle one more time. A man and his son are in a terrible accident. They get rushed to the hospital. As a doctor comes out to look at them, the doctor exclaims, this kid, this is my boy. This is my son. How can this be? Now, I know some of you guys are itching to yell out the answer. If you know the answer, go ahead and yell it out. How can this be? Yeah, exactly, 100%. Now, 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 what's going on? Okay, just in case you didn't hear it, the doctor is the child's mother. Now, what's, what is this riddle getting at? What is this riddle playing on? Right? Just, <laughs> just this idea that we all know that women can be doctors, right? But somewhere in the recess of our mind, when we think doctor, we have automatic perception, oh, it has to be a man, right? Uh, We have this identity of a doctor. But this riddle helps us really analyze, hey, where is our gut reaction coming from? What is our immediate response? Similarly, when we think about our Christian walk, our Christian life, this whole message is going to be a pushback against, hey, as a Christian, I am controlled by my sin. My self-identity as a Christian is still wrapped up my addiction to sin I'm controlled by it I'm a slave to it there's nothing I can do about it that is the wrong identity just like we talked about with the riddle the wrong identity of a doctor (laughs) this is the wrong identity of a Christian so with that being said please stand with me as I read this passage This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and it reads this way. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You may be seated. You know, we have this common phrase, this idiom, you're beating a dead horse, right? Well, this morning, I truly believe that this horse cannot die. I'm not really beating a dead horse. I'm hitting on the same point that's been preached on as we as a church have been going through the book of Romans, right? There's a common theme in the book of Romans. It's that we as Christians, we are new uh, creations. We're new creatures made holy, made right by the Holy Spirit, by the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by the will of God the Father. We are new people, new beings. The old has passed away, and we are made new. The Apostle Paul, just to give you context, since we're in the book of Corinthians, and as I mentioned, as a church, we're going through the book of Romans, just to give you a quick background. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter, and he is in the city of Ephesus. Now, this church in Corinth, there's some issues going to church in Corinth. And so they reach out to the Apostle Paul. They write him a letter, asking him for advice, input, feedback on how to handle certain issues. The Apostle Paul writes back a letter to that church in Corinth. Now, that first letter that the Apostle Paul sent back is actually lost in time. We actually don't know where it is. We've never found it. It's gone. But after some time, after writing that church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul gets word that, hey, that church... They're actually not getting better. They're not improving. They're actually not taking his feedback, his advice. So the apostle writes a second letter to the church there in Corinth. And that's where we get the book of First Corinthians. I know a little bit confusing. First Corinthians is actually the second letter. As far as in uh, scripture, it's actually First Corinthians. The church there had fallen on hard times. They were not following God's law their life they're not being obedient to God and actually the Apostle Paul in his book of first Corinthians he covers a number of different topics I mean he covers how to handle the Lord's Supper how Christians should treat one another brothers and sisters in Christ he talks about marriage he talks about love he talks about sexuality He talks about a whole host of things he also talks about the gifts of the Spirit you know, that's a topic we still talk about and debate on today right? And he jumps from topic to topic, point to point. And where we fall here, the main point of this message, of this passage, is this. It's like, Christians, you have been given a new identity in Christ. You're not identified by your sin. So therefore, walk in the new identity of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again. As Christians, we are not identified by our sin. Past, present, or future, we have been given a new name, a new identity in Jesus Christ. So, therefore, walk in your actions and in your words in a new identity of Jesus Christ. So, this morning, we're going to let Scripture, God's Word, form our understanding about our identity, who we are in Christ. Let God's Word form that, not our own voices and our own thoughts. Not the world's voice or thought, but let's let God's word form that identity. So the passage that we just read, it starts off this way. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, they will not inherit the kingdom of God? So in order to understand that passage, we're gonna look at a few words. The first is the unrighteous. And in order to really understand the word unrighteous, we have to know what the word righteous means. What does the word righteous mean? Well, it's not an easy answer because throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the term righteousness gets used different ways. I to go through all the ways that the word righteousness is formed. We're going to kind of just focus on how it's being used in this passage. And as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul he writes about righteousness more than any other New Testament writer. You know that may not come into as a surprise to you because you also know that the Apostle Paul he writes a lot in the New Testament. But word righteous, right? It can be used in a way that's comparative of some sort of moral standard, right? It's something we use commonly. We kind of compare ourselves to one another, people to people, person to person. So the scripture says that King David, he was more righteous than King Saul. Just means that he was a better person, moral character, right? He aligned more with the ways of God than King Saul. But then, if we use that term, righteous being compared person to person, there's also another comparison. Person, mankind, to God. How do you stack up and measure to God himself in a form of righteousness? Now, in my house, we have tons of books and tons of kids' books, different kids' children's Bibles. And always, in these stories, you'll find a story of creation, Right? I should hope you should find the story of creation in these kids' Bibles, right? And I will say, some books are better. Some of these kids' Bibles are better than others, but you'll always find some sort of story about creation there. And I think that's really crucial. That's very important about when God created mankind. It's that man, man and woman, we created in the image of God. Now, that may often be overlooked or misunderstood, but but what is that really getting at, being created in the image of God? There's two different ways you can probably think about it that'll help out. One is, they're made to reflect God. Mankind is made to reflect God's moral character. That's something that we use probably every day when we look in the mirror. We look in the mirror and we see a reflection. When we smile, that reflection smiles. When we frown, that reflection frowns. That reflection does whatever we do. That's the way mankind was created. God is righteous, holy, he's just, he's loving, he's merciful, he's gracious. The list goes on and on, right? So therefore, mankind, we were created to be the same way, to reflect God's moral purity. Another way that you can think about it is certainly in the ancient Near East and that time period in the Old Testament it was very um, evident there, but if a king were to create a statue of himself and had it in a certain place, a certain area, that statue is supposed to represent the king himself. If the king has power and authority and rule, that statue, wherever it's at, is supposed to represent the king's power, authority, and rule. So that likewise, mankind, we were actually God's representatives here on earth. We're supposed to rule and lead and love as God rules and leads and love. When the universe looks at mankind, the universe supposed to say, hey, that is what God is like. Mankind, that is what God is like. But of course, the story goes further right we have Genesis chapter 3 the fall so when Adam rebelled and sinned and fell all of mankind fell along with him so we are no longer righteous we are what is commonly referred to as totally deprived or depraved another way to look at it is that we are radically depraved radical kind of goes on a Latin word the Radix, the root of who we are, the actual core of who we are, we are marred by sin. That doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be, but us, mankind, at our core? Yeah, we're marred. We're messed up by sin. We rebel against God. We do not want to obey him. We want to run away from him. We never want to run towards God. So, we are unrighteous, now that you understand that word, righteous. The Apostle Paul hear what he has to say in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one falls after God. All has fallen away, together they become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. That's the Apostle Paul describing mankind. And get this, the Apostle Paul, it's not like he's coming up with this on his own effort. He's actually quoting the Old Testament. The Old Testament says the same thing in Psalms chapter 14, in Psalm chapter 53. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one follows after God. All have become worthless. No one does right. No, not one. Right? Right? I don't know, just talking with different people, I don't know if you've come across this, but sometimes people attack Christianity by saying, hey, this kind of doctrine of total depravity, that all of mankind has fallen away, that's something that the Apostle Paul came up with. That's something the church came up with later on. Jews didn't believe that, the Old Testament didn't believe that. Well, that's absolutely wrong, bro. The Old Testament, just look at Psalm. Look at the creation narrative. That shows you right there that all of mankind has fallen away due to Adam. Now, let me say this. Even if you did not have Scripture itself, if you didn't have the Bible, I'm telling you, you do not have to spend a lot of time in convincing people that they are sinners. You should not have to, in whatever conversation you have with people, just take my word for it, we'll actually get into it, you should not have to spend a whole lot of time convincing people That they are sinners because deep down inside they actually know it. There's two quick examples before we get into scriptures, two quick examples. One is that, you know, we've often heard the phrase, don't judge me, right? (laughs) Don't judge me. Now that statement, that phrase is being used as a pushback, obviously, to judgment. But what people aren't saying, they are not saying that I am pure I do what's right, what they're really saying is, who are you to judge me because you are unpure, you do wrong too, just like me. So it's not a defense of their righteousness, their purity, their right standing. It's a defense in that, why should you, somebody else should judge me, somebody who's pure, somebody who's righteous, right? And that ain't you, so don't judge me, right? So they know, they're convinced that they are sinners, right? Another way, just this past week, I was having a conversation with a person, and we weren't even talking about anything godly or spiritual, but in the middle of the conversation, you know, he just says, hey, um, I've done wrong, and you've done wrong too. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. Uh, What he's trying to get at was, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat as sinners. I agree with you 100%. We were not even talking about God, and you felt the need to bring that up. That's great. People recognize and know that they themselves are sinners. That's not the issue. People know that they are under some sort of judgment from someone, somewhere. That's not the issue that people have. The issue is that they suppress that truth. They try to avoid that truth that I am a sinner. They try to avoid that truth that someday, somehow, somewhere, I will be judged for it. Actually, let's go back to the Apostle Paul. This is what he says in Romans chapter eight, or Romans chapter one, verse 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Mankind, we have a habit, we have an issue of avoiding the truth of God. Again, remember what I said? We're depraved to our core. We want to rebel against God. We always want to run away from Him, not towards Him. And so we suppress the truth. You know, there's a whole list of different ways we suppress the truth. One way is we say that, hey, God, I know that I'm a bad person. But you're going to grade on the curve. God's going to grade on the curve. You know, when we're back doing exams and tests back in middle school, high school, etc. We kind of hope that the teacher is going to grade on the curve. Like, nobody in class is going to get a 100, so I shouldn't aim to get a 100. I should do whatever I can and just expect that eventually that grade will bump itself up. So since all of mankind has fallen, sinful, God knows that, right? So as long as I'm doing better than a person next to me, as long as I look better than a person over there, then I'm doing pretty good. Now I will confess, I'm sure there's got to be some people like you, uh, like me here, I know Becca, my wife, is not one of them, but me, I, when I take an exam or take a class, I have it in my idea of what grade I kinda wanna score, right, in that class. It isn't always an A, but let's just say it's an A, right? What's the minimum effort that I will have to put forth to get that grade? I am not gonna go all out to get a particular grade. Got too much going on, right? But what's the minimum amount of work that I can do to achieve that particular grade? Now, if that's like you, if if I'm describing you as well as myself, there always comes a point, right? You might be right most of the time, but there always comes a point where you're like, man, I misjudged, I miscalculated. (laughs) My grade is lower than what I wanted, right? Uh, Multiply that by a thousand. You're totally misjudging God and His judgment if you're thinking that God's going to give you some sort of pass, or some sort of look over, or give you a plus for whatever you've done in your life. God does not grade on a curve, so don't suppress the truth of God. You know, another way that people suppress it is that people might say, "Hey, well, if I can get enough people on my side who believe and think like I do." then, hey, God has to get with the program. Hey, time has changed. People have evolved. God, you should evolve too. Well, guess what it means to be God? It means he doesn't change. He's not evolving. He's not growing into some sort of higher power. His laws, his rules reflect who he is, just like mankind is supposed to reflect who God is. What it means to be human is that, yes, we evolve, we change, either for the better or for the worse, but God, he doesn't. So God's not gonna get with the program. We need to get with the program. Another way in which we kind of suppress the truth is that we say, hey, out of sight, out of mind. If I don't think about God's law, if I don't think about him, if I don't think about the church, then, hey, it's not really there. I don't have to worry about it. Out of sight, out of mind. You know, sometimes we do that with our own bills, right? We get a bill in the mail, we have to pay XYZ, we kind of hide it away, pretend like it's not there, or we throw it in some sort of pile. I throw it in piles. You throw it in a pile, and then you get an, another bill that kind of reminds you, oh, yeah, that's right, I forgot about that. But then the bill's a lot larger than what they previously said. It's only getting worse and worse that's the way with god you can try to run away suppress pretend like an all-seeing all-knowing god doesn't see you or isn't aware of you and your will in your way but yet you're only making things worse the best option is always to run toward god not away from him so those are just three different and the list goes along this list goes on of different ways that mankind We suppress the truth of God, that we are sinners and that we are under God's judgment. The important thing that Paul says in this passage, he says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. It's like, do not be tricked. Do not have the wool pulled over your eyes. You know, the imagery here is kind of back with the garden, the Garden of Eden, where you have Adam and Eve, and you have the serpent. He's very sly, he's cunning, he's tricky. He knows how to twist words. He knows what you really think and what you're really going after. And he kind of uses that against him. The serpent, he says, did God really say? That same statement we're faced with now and today. Did God really say? Did God really say the unrighteous do not, should not inherit the kingdom of God? That's not fair by God. There's no way that's true. The Apostle Paul here, he says, do not be deceived, do not be tricked. Now I'm not gonna go down this whole list of, uh, that the Apostle Paul gives here, because for one, this whole list is not inclusive. It's not inclusive of all the sins. Actually the Apostle Paul has different other lists in scripture as well. And this list is not inclusive, it's just a sample of things, behaviors, patterns of action that shows our unrighteousness before God, before the world. And secondly, the reason I'm not going to go down this list is because, number two, this list is kind of uh, 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 all encapsulates the identity of all of humanity. We are marred to our core. We are marred by sin. So do not listen to your own voice when it comes about Deception, but God's law, his rule. Do not be, be deceived by the voice of the world, but be transformed by the word of God. You know, just like Adam and Eve, do not use fig leaves as coverings. What do I mean by that? Don't use other sins as a cover-up for other sins. Do not use lies or friends, excuses, the world, what has been done to you or your own past as a cover-up for sin. The only thing that makes a difference as cover-up for sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that's worthy, that can deal with sin all these other things that we so often run to and we use as a cover-up for sin. It's like a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. It's worse than a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. It, it does nothing. It does nothing when we stand before God. The great thing about God is that his judgment, his wrath, only he can divert it for you. And he's given you the blood of Jesus Christ to cover over you if you just run towards him. You know, sometimes one of the most depressing things in life that you can do is uh, go to a funeral, right? It's, it's depressing for a couple different reasons. One is because just of a passing of a loved one or friend. Um, it's also depressing, from my experience, I'm not sure if you guys have experienced the same thing, likely you have, is that when you go to a funeral, There'll be some sort of minister or pastor there, and there's tons of people there who are grieving about the loss, who want answers to what's going on, the purpose of life, direction. What is life after death and things of that nature? And that minister or pastor will just give some sort of fluff answer. Hey, we need to be better in this life. We need to improve ourselves We need to pull each other up by our own bootstraps. Or this person, they're in a better life. (laughs) Just uh, maybe a little over a year ago, I was was at a funeral, there were hundreds of people there from a person who everybody genuinely liked. Now this person, from all that we can see, uh, was not a believer, was not a Christian. There's hundreds of people just crying, mourning over this, trying to get answers. And all they hear is a hopeless, honestly meaningless answer. The only hope that there is for victory over death, the only hope that there is for victory over sin, is Jesus Christ. Do not depend on your own works, do not depend on some lies from somebody else. That is the only hope. And remember that message of hope, of forgiveness, of being welcomed by God as others go through grieving processes themselves. Because honestly, people are looking for direction. People are looking for hope. Let me read this from Romans chapter one. It's Apostle Paul speaking, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Back to our original passage, we do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. We looked at that word, unrighteous. Now let's look at the word kingdom of God just a few days ago. A few weeks ago, the world mourned the passing, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Now, with her death, her passing, comes the transition of, let's say, her kingdom. Great Britain, United Kingdom, England. Now, I guarantee you, none of us were sitting there rubbing our hands together saying, hey, finally, my time has come. Maybe I will be king or queen of the United Kingdom. None of us were thinking of that, right? (laughs) Why? Because that kingdom is being, being given to somebody who's worthy, someone who's, let's say, quote unquote, in the family, right? Who's next in line? It's given to somebody who's worthy. God's kingdom is only given to those who are worthy. Let's get this straight. There's only one righteous person there's only one worthy person and it's Jesus Christ listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through eleven. he says this and being found in human form referring to Jesus he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So the ultimate question is this. How can we, unrighteous people, inherit a kingdom, a kingdom that belongs to God that can only go to a righteous person? That is the crux of the issue. That is the question. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 11 through 13. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He also says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but all to all who have loved his appearing. You know, there's a phrase there that I just read in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 8 righteous judge you know earlier we're talking about hey don't judge me who are you to judge you're sinful but we find out there is a righteous judge it's God and guess what that righteous judge also declares those who are found in Christ righteous what a wonderful gift of grace and mercy that we find in Christ That judgment by God, it is true, because he is a righteous judge. He's not pulling some sort of magic trick, declaring you righteous, right? If you are found in Christ, you truly are righteous. Because when God sees you, what he sees is Jesus Christ. Remember, we're talking about that reflection. Do we reflect God? When God sees you, he sees Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know so that's where we get to this part of this passage such were some of you God has done an amazing work for those who call upon the name of Christ or you are transformed you are made new those sins that identified you before they no longer identify you those sins that controlled you before they no longer control you you are a new person a new creature In Christ Jesus because I want to say you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God you know this is a pretty jam-packed sentence it really just says that God has done amazing work in your life you are washed you know what is that kidding at that you're no longer sinful you're no longer dirty you are made anew this could be a reference to baptism, we don't really know, but even with baptism, right, that is an outward expression of what God has done inside of you, that you have died to sin, been raised anew to life in Christ. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, another way of saying that is you have been made holy, you have been made right. It's as if God is looking at you with the end result already in mind, that you are holy. Of course, we know that sanctification is a process that we go through throughout our life where we work with God, where we work with the Holy Spirit in conforming our life to his will and his way. But God is already looking at you with the end result in mind. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. That righteous judge, God, He declares before all of creation, the angels, the worlds, all of creation, that you, whatever your name is, John, Bill, Athanasius, Cornelius, whoever, you are made righteous. That is a declaration of God himself that should overshadow any declaration that you give to yourself, that others give to you, the world may say about you? Because they, exactly, you can throw it back at them. Who are you to judge? I have God the Judge speaking over me. Amen. Hold on to that truth. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you are justified. And The great thing about it is that you see the Trinity at work here. You see the Holy Spirit mentioned here. You see the, the name Jesus Christ. And you know that this is the will of God the Father. The whole working of the Trinity is involved in your salvation and you being made right with God. Now, as we move forward to the application, you know, sometimes it's kind of fun uh, imitating or trying to uh, pretend like you're somebody that you're not, right? I was going to use a reference of the Renaissance Fair, but I'm assuming that probably wouldn't go well in this group of this crowd. Maybe you don't know what the Renaissance Fair is, but let me say this. <laughs> it's silly. That's what it is. No. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, my, my wife is giving me a frown. Uh, yeah, so sometimes you like, to, it's, it's fun to pretend to be somebody that you're not. I remember in college, went out with a bunch of friends. We went to a uh, restaurant, and the part of the restaurant, there's a... Uh, bar area, and so as we were walking out on, on the side of the street, um, <laughs> some of my friends were like, hey, it would be funny if you pretended like you were a bouncer. Uh, I, was, I was like, yeah, that sounds like pretty funny. <laughs> uh, so I just pretended to be a bouncer and just started asking for people's ID as they were walking in, right? I, myself, I wasn't even 21 at the time, right? <laughs> and so I am like, asking, for, and people definitely gave me their IDs or like acting like it was normal and everything, right? But, yeah, that can be funny, but what if I stuck with that persona? What if I stuck with that, like, that's who I am, I'm a bouncer? Right, before you came in to church service, I said, where's your ID? And I turned you around if you didn't have your ID on you, if you weren't 21, right? What if at the dinner table, I look at my wife and kids, say, where's your ID? Turn around the kids, you can't eat tonight. I'm sorry, you're not allowed, right? There's something concerning about that, right? There would be something wrong with me if I assume an identity that's not my identity. The same way it is with Christians, right? If you have been made new by the Holy Spirit, the outworking of God in your life, do not assume your past identity. Do not say, fill in the blank, I am an addicted Christian. I am a lying Christian. I am a gay Christian. Christian, whatever that blank is, do not assume that it's part of your identity in Christ. Now, yes, through sanctification, there's going to be a process in which we fight, we struggle against sins that we sometimes turn back to. That's one thing, but to call yourself that sin or to identify yourself with that sin, that's not something a Christian should do. Now, I'm only speaking to believers, Right? Because if you're not in Christ, if you're not giving your life over to him, then yeah, you should rightly identify yourself as a sinner. Yes, when that that sin says jump, you say how high. You are controlled by sin. But as a believer, that's not the case. We are made new. At the root of all deception, right, It's the pull, the desire for us to distrust God. deception that's what it really gets at. The idea that we should distrust God and not trust God himself. It's kind of silly when you think about it. An all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, we don't want to trust. But we'll trust our own finite, marred, broken assessment of life. We'll trust our own assessment of who we are instead of, instead of the all-knowing, all-powerful, the one who created you, for that matter, God. So don't fall into the trap that sin is bigger than God. Let me read this from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So sometimes deception can factor in, can play into us running away from God, meaning us as um, believers, Christians. Another way is we as believers, as Christians, sometimes we can fall into a pattern, a habit of just the draw of sin itself. We have the draw of deception, we have the draw of sin itself itself. Uh, Titus, uh, my oldest son, he's four, and my mother had gotten him some rollerblades for, I think it was his birthday or some event. Now, I've never ridden rollerblades in my life, nor will I, even if my son rides them, right? And so, I don't have much advice to give him for rollerblades, except for this, right? Make sure both feet are pointed in the same direction, right? If those feet are going two different directions, like it's, it's, it's game over. Uh, I've never done this, but I know how it'll end up, right? The same way in our walk with God. Make sure your feet are going in the same direction. Don't try to have one foot in either worlds. As believers, as Christians. Listen, I know, we all know the deception, the pull of sin. We all know how damaging it can be. But sin itself is only going to pull you in the wrong direction. The path of sanctification is a hard path. It's a path with bumps, scrapes, bruises. It's a path that's long, that's hard. But it's also a path where God walks alongside us. It's a path also that we have the church to support us. And it's also a path that God commands us. So walk with God. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over us, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Remember what I said in the beginning, the whole point of this message. is that Christians are not identified by their sin, past, present, or future. Christians are identified by their new name in Christ. So therefore, walk in that new name. I'll close with this from the words from the Apostle Paul. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thanking, thank you so much for doing what we could not do on our own ability. <laughs> we can't save ourselves. We can't change ourselves. But Lord, Through your Holy Spirit, you have made us new in Christ. Thank you for that. And Lord, through your word, help shape your people, shape our mindsets about our new identity in Christ so that we will not hold on to that old identity, that sinful identity. And Lord, embolden us through your Holy Spirit to share your gospel, your hope, your good news to those who desperately need it, to to those who are looking for it. In the holy name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.